search your word as we remind ourselves what this life in this world is truly about. Oh, several of these songs have already prepared us for that, Lord. We're reminded that this life is short. Jesus will come back. He will rule and reign with our iron rod in perfect mercy, love, and authority. And we long for those days. But while we wait, Lord, you've given instructions of how we live in this world, married, single, going through distress and difficult times. You give instructions how we honor you, Lord. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us secure those truths in our hearts this morning. Lord, we thank you for each and every person that's here, young, old, visiting uh, members, Lord. We're so grateful how you gather the body of Christ and how important that is, particularly in these days. So I ask that you bless them for being here. May we all have ears to hear, hearts to respond to God's truth. Father, we thank you and ask for strength for those who, who can't be with us, Lord. We're grateful for them, Lord, but we ask that you would strengthen those who are in hospitals, those who are suffering from illnesses, those who just no longer have the strength to attend. We ask that you care for them and love on them. We particularly pray for our missionaries around the world, Lord. And this morning, we particularly think of those in Ukraine, Afghanistan, places where new dictators are rising up, where it will make very difficult for the church to meet. We pray that you protect them, Lord. Pray that your will will be done. We know you use all things to bring about your will, Lord. But we ask for safety for your church, Lord. Lord, now grant us understanding. Minds that hear and think, hearts that respond. As we turn now to your word, in Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 25 through 31 is our text this morning. I've entitled it, a life fueled by the mercy of God. A life that is fueled by the mercy of God. In verse 26, you find a very important statement there. And there the Bible is teaching us that we are to live in light of present distress. We are to live in light of, even in and in light of present distress by the mercies of God. I had written an introduction to the sermon, but this morning I received a letter from a pastor in uh, Ukraine. And it's uh, quite moving. And I want to read it to you this morning as a way as we begin to think. But I, I, I want you, as I read this letter, to think about your marriage. To think about your singleness. To think about your role in this world as a Christian as I read this and think about how you would respond. What would your faith be like? What would you be doing in times like this? The letter has three parts to it. It is portion given before the invasion. One is the, another portion as it starts and then an update from most likely this morning or last night. This pastor writes, we have made some contingency plans because it seems like the wise thing to do. We are buying some non-perishable foods, waters, propane stoves, and packing bomb shelter type backpacks. So we're ready to go. But as Christians, we are not here to survive. 
We are here to love the Lord with all our hearts and joyfully, joyfully give everything we have towards the fame of the Almighty. Later, he writes, as the invasion starts yesterday morning, when the invasion started, we went up and down the stairs of our apartment building, and we told everyone who answered the door that our church is nearby and has an underground parking that is a place of refuge and shelter that they can come and be saved. We offered to help and gave them a flyer with our church address, phone numbers, and six important gospel verses on the back. Pray for those people to be saved. We are praying fervently that this war will draw many to be saved. That's why we are still on this earth. The update from probably last night or early this morning. As we begin our third night here in Kiev with period periodic sirens and explosions, they often come in clumped times several in a row and then stop for a while. The Lord is answering your prayers, protecting us. Praise Him. Tonight, we have about 50 people from our church and approximately another 15 who are unbelievers from the neighborhood using our church building as a refuge. There are several children and a couple of babies This will be our third night sleeping on the mats in our underground parking lot. As we use as a bomb shelter, please pray. It's really happening. Those are our dear brothers and sisters. The same things happened in Afghanistan as the United States have removed themselves out of that place. Men and women around the world suffer greatly. And I want you to think about the gift of singleness and marriage as Paul has been working us over as we've worked through 1 Corinthians 7 of how we glorify God and how the mercy of God sustains us in those unique roles that he has given us. And I think this passage, 25 through 31, is as challenging as any passage in this text on living in light of the glory of the Lord in the coming consummation of this age. My prayer as I wrote and studied this sermon that as each one of us, myself included, would be challenged to use, and I want you to think about this, this very temporary time on this earth for his glory. We get so lost so quickly in the events of the day and have not an eternal view of things. And we fret We worry, we cause problems within our relationships because we lack an eternal view. Paul is trying to set our minds and our hearts to think of the glory of God in light of coming eternity. Well, this morning I want to give you three thoughts from these seven verses. They're to spur us on to trust in the mercies of God, not be consumed by our own desires that harm relationships and harm the, the, the calling of the church to go forward. Well, number one, trustworthy biblical counsel fueled by the mercy of God overcomes legalistic and worldly advice. I know that's wordy. Let me read it again. Trustworthy biblical counsel fueled by the mercy of God overcomes legalistic and worldly Advice. Look at verse 25 with me in 1 Corinthians 7. Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, 
but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. When we start to think about opinions, we need to ask ourselves, are our opinions trustworthy? <laughs> Ever been given bad advice? Probably all of us have received that. Have you given bad advice? Have you ever searched back to see, was my advice biblical? See, biblical advice is what Christians give. We have what we call a biblical worldview of the events that are going on today and in our own lives. Do you have a biblical worldview of what's going on and does your counsel come from that biblical worldview? And then let me ask... One more thing that's in this verse. Do you give that counsel with the mercy of God? See, a lot of people speak the truth, but they don't speak it in love. It's a problem, isn't it? There may be a straightforward command, but you can give it so harshly to that person it's very difficult for them to receive it because there's no mercy in it. Paul's dealing with very, very difficult subjects here, isn't he? This is probably one of the most challenging passages I've studied and had to preach as I worked my way through this. But he does this because he loves and desires the mercy of God and it flavors his counsel. Every one of you will give counsel this week to somebody. Moms and dads, you may give counsel to your children. We may counsel each other as married folks. Singles, you may give counsel in your jobs or to others that you're ministering to, you will all give counsel this week in one way or another. Is it biblical? And is it flavored by the mercy of God? Notice in verse 25 that Paul starts this session with now concerning. It tells us that there's a new topic coming. He's, he's responding to this letter that's been written by these ascetic Corinth believers or, or those that claim to be believers in the church. They, they're not really questioning. We've, we've, we've understood that as we've gone through this. They're making statements to him and he's responding and we'll see this throughout the rest of the letter where he says now concerning. Here the question is what about virgins and who are they and how do they fit within this context of verse 7? Well, there's been some traditional views that the church has had for a long time. And one of the traditional views, as I don't think is correct, that, that stood for a long time is that Paul was giving counsel concerning fathers and their unmarried daughters. Well, I know there's some of that as, as the chapter concludes later on. We'll see some of that authority with the father and the daughter there. But despite that long history of that understanding that's been in the church, I don't think that's what this is speaking about in context. Another view that arose that uh, many thought Paul was talking about is there seemed to be um, couples who um, were either engaged or married or just living together but not practicing intimacy. And so some think that he's addressing that, but again, I don't think that fits into the context because Paul has already strongly opposed such a lifestyle in verses 2 through 6. I believe the context points to an understanding that the Corinthians, these ascetic group, 
is referring to these younger engaged women and their fiancés. I believe that they are instructing these unmarried individuals that they are not to go through with marriage. They're instructing them to refrain from this. Because remember, their whole approach is if you uh, uh, leave these things, the, the things that the flesh desires, marriage and intimacy and all these things, you, like us, will be spiritually superior. That's been their theme. And Paul will have none of that. Remember in verse 12, Paul pointed out that Jesus did not give entirely uh, clear instruction on singleness. Right? That's why he says, the Lord did not give, but I do. I think there's some allusion as he deals with eunuchs in chapter 19. Um, but Paul, being inspired by the Spirit, says that I do have a thought on these things. So when he gets to this phrase, I have no command of the Lord, this does not mean that his teaching is nonetheless divine in authority. He has all authority as he speaks. It's the Spirit of God writing through him. He's being kind and gentle. He says, look, I don't have a command directly from the Lord, but I do have an opinion on this. And so we see Paul start to unpack this. The Greek word opinion here is probably a little stronger than our English translation. It, it gives the idea of a judgment or a conviction. Paul has a conviction on what should be taking place with these betrothals, with these engagements, with these people who are seeking marriage. But Paul knew that by the mercies of the Lord, he was trustworthy. He understood that. He knew his position in Christ. He, he knew that God had granted him to speak on his behalf. And so Paul's conviction was that it was better for single Christians to remain single. You see that in this text. If they had not received this freedom from intimacy and constant companionship. But the Corinth ascetics, they, they had turned their opinion. It's not good for a man to touch a woman. Remember in verse 1, they had turned their opinion into law. And so imagine being single with a desire to marry and being in this church and this ascetic group was constantly pressuring you that, no, that is sinful. The result was that those engaged were looked down as those who were in sin. In fact, I think they're even referencing that they were striving against the Spirit if they were to consummate their marriage. But I think Paul's refuting this all the way through. He constantly upholds the gift of marriage. And then in verse 40, he finally says, and I also have the Spirit of God. So he's trumping them, right, in a way. I think they probably actually used the term Spirit of God in their rebuttal to Paul. And Paul says, yeah, I have the Spirit of God. Now, think about this powerful statement Paul says. He says, as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. It's interesting. He doesn't appeal to his apostolic position, which he has a right to do, right? He is one of the apostles. He has seen the Lord Jesus Christ. He has sent. There's only a handful of them. There are no more after Paul. So he has a great 
position as an apostolic position that he holds. But he also doesn't refer to even his position in Christ. He claims his judgment, his conviction of the situation is trustworthy because God gave him mercy. So mercy is a very important part of our discernment when we come to the word of God. Now, the reason I say that is you think about the Corinthian position, what they created was anxiety and stress. How would you like to be that person? You've dreamt all your life. I think girls do this. Guys kind of don't. I don't know how to say that. (laughs) We just don't. Uh, We dream of other things. Um, But, and all of a sudden, you're, you're, you're called sinful and outside of the will of the Spirit because you desire to be married. See, there's a contrast going on here. There's a contrast between legalism and the mercy of God. And Paul's statement is trustworthy and biblical counsel because it's fueled by the mercy of God. Now, don't underestimate this power of trustworthy fueled by mercy. See, what mercy teaches us is that I'm going to give you my biblical view of this. I'm going to give you a biblical understanding of this but I'm also one who needed mercy. See, see how that makes your counsel come across as not holier than thou? Paul says, I've received mercy. I was the chief of sinners. I've put the church in jail. I hated the things of God, of Christ. I was against all that, but God has granted me mercy, and so I give you biblical counsel based on that. But not the legalist. They're fueled by being right. They're fueled by their way or the highway type of instruction. And so I tell you and remind you, don't underestimate the power of trustworthiness fueled by mercy with the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, this doesn't mean we abuse grace, right? Paul is not talking about that. We saw that last week where we went back to Romans and he said, you know, people say, grace, grace, you know, and they live in sin. He says, how can we do that anymore? That's, that's not what this is about. I think he's giving counsel here because mercy has given him a correct view of marriage. It's given him a correct view of singleness. It's given him a correct view of how Christians live in this world and how we pursue our, our worship and our service of the Lord. And, and Paul, I think, credits the mercy of God. So how, let me ask you this before we move forward, how is the mercy of God made known in your singleness or your marriage? Tough question, isn't it? Do people see the mercy of God in my relationship with Gina? How about you? Well, I think if you watch us a little bit, you can see the mercy of God, don't you? We're not perfect. But, did, but does it get credit? Do our marriages point to the fact that God, in his infinite wisdom, before time began, designed marriage to ultimately show the picture of Christ in his church? Does your marriage show mercy? What about your singleness? Does singleness show mercy? I think both in marriage and singleness, there can be a lack of contentment which would tell people, I do not trust in the mercy of God. 
See, discontented believers draw people away from the mercy of God. And so Paul, as he sets this up with verse 25, he's trying to get them to start to think, I am giving you convictions and judgments that come because God has been merciful to me. And I've received that mercy and my counsel is trustworthy. Number two, only by the mercy of God does singleness or marriage find peace that overcomes the distress of the world. Only by the mercy of God does singleness or marriage find peace that overcomes the distress of the world. Look at verse 26 with me. I think then that this is good in view of the present distress that is good for a man to remain as he is. I love Jesus' words in John 16, 33. He says this, These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. We love that verse, don't we? But then he throws a little contrast in there. In the world you will have tribulation. Some of the uh, translations say much tribulation. There's a contrast, right? In me, you have peace. (laughs) Position, right? Our relationship with Jesus Christ. But then there's this aspect that Jesus said, we're in the world, and in the world there is tribulation. We understand that, and our brothers in Ukraine understand it probably exponentially greater than we do at this moment. There's going to be trials. But then Christ comes back and says, take courage, I've overcome the world. I'm in control. So as we begin to look at verse 26 here, Paul says that even though I have no command and my decision is considered trustworthy and good because of the mercies of God, I understand that there are present distresses in your life. There is tribulation in your life. And so you go, well, what is this crisis? What is this present distress that that this Corinth church, and probably all churches in some way or another, are experiencing. Well, some distress may be, particularly in the, in the church, the Corinth, the Corinth church, and I think today as well, is a disobedience. Corinth church is disobedient. This letter is a great letter of admonishment. And yet we found many people in the circle of Christianity use this book as their doctrine. The more we study it, the more we realize it's an admonishment, chapter after chapter, of way they have not handled the things of God properly. And so he admonishes them. We'll get to chapter 11. We'll actually be in it today when we celebrate the Lord's table. But there he reminds them that some of them are sick and even some of them die because they mishandle the table, the Lord's table. So maybe some of their distress is because of that. But I believe the present distress here is part of a more larger experience of suffering. The church is is undergoing persecution and suffering as they wait for the return of Christ. That was the same in the first century as it is today, as as they and us uh, continue to wait for the return. But remember, from the beginning of this letter, Paul has concentrated to remind the believer to live in light of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And he does that because it's a problem, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach that over and over before this lesson is done. 
He's coming soon. Imminent return of Christ. Live in light of that. But we'll go out those doors and we'll get a phone call. And some difficult issue is coming in on our life. And we're immediately swept back into that issue, aren't we? And pretty soon the problems of our life take us away from what God has truly called us to do, to live in the imminent return. As I read that letter this morning, I sat at my desk and just wept and I thought about those I, I know, I don't know that pastor who wrote it, but I, but I know what he's going through in some sort. I know the care you have for people and the love you have for the flock. And I, and I began to just think of what was going through that man's heart as he penned those words. And I think about this and how to balance this imminent return of Christ, living in light of his coming, dealing with persecution of the church as it intensifies, and then thinking about this delicate, difficult balance that we have here we gather as the church and Ukraine is suffering. That's a difficult balance, right? We're going to walk out and go to lunch somewhere. They're hungered down in parking lots. And yet it applies to us as much as it applies to them. I think some have thought that the reasoning behind Paul's urging them to stay single is because of this issue, right? There's persecution and so forth. And I think that's partly right, but I think it misses the greater point. Paul is trying to get the church and us here now through the word of God to anticipate the return of Christ, to live in light of that. Now the apostle, he already sees that the end has begun, right? He states in, and look at the end of verse 31, that the world is already passing away. So Christians are not to abandon their lives in this world. They are simply not to let the world dictate their present behavior in the times of difficulty. So we often, as elders, we sit and talk because um, we anticipate problems coming on our view of marriage, our, our biblical worldview of a lot of things, Right? that they're not going to put up with. They're already writing hate crime bills and all kinds of things are coming our way. So how do we handle that? How do we live in light of that difficulty, that distress? Do we abandon our present behavior in order to back away from the distress? Or do we stand lovingly but firm? So your pastor elders are working on that. We're thinking through those things. Because we know that if we don't stand, what would you do? We're your shepherds. You follow the sheep, follow the shepherds. And so there's a, there's a, there's a recourse to this thing. And so we know that God's called us to stand, or will you stand with us? Will we live in these distressful times? Now, notice in Paul's judgment that the present distress brings him to state this. It's good for a man to remain as he is there in verse 26. And you say, well, that kind of sounds a lot like the Corinthian position. But in actuality, he's back to his original argument that it's good to remain where God has you. Don't try to leave that position for this reason that you want to gain some spiritual superiority. See, he's still holding that context. Don't be married or unmarried because I think it's going to be a, 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 I'm going to be more spiritual if I do that. So he doesn't change his position at all. And then comes this persecution. And, and here, the church, he knows the church is going to go through persecution. And, and, 
And he wants the single person, the married person, to, to go through that and trust God, but yet he's mindful, right? He, he thinks about a single person going through persecution versus a married person going through persecution. I may have to adjust some of the things I do, not compromising on the word of God because I have a wife. We're going to get into that next week. He's going to talk in depthly about that. Where a single person runs into the flames in a sense, right? We see that. And that's what Paul wants. He says, I, I need more guys like myself. He says, I wish that all men were like me. See, he, he knows that there's, there's not an emotional tie, a holding back, a, a biblical care that needs to be in that home of that spouse and children. And so this is the reason why he says, I wish that all men were like I. And, and think about the reality of these verses being carried out right now in Ukraine. Men kissing their wives and family goodbye as they put them on buses and hundreds of thousands of people trying to get out of that, out of that, that nation. Whether men stay back and are given guns they've never shot before, being, a, being somewhat quickly equipped to fight off a, a mega nation. See, the reality of this comes true. And if the Lord tarries, brothers and sisters, you know this stuff's going to happen to us in some form or another. So Paul understood suffering. And listen, he understood practical problems that come with it, right? The added stress of having a spouse and seeking to protect her or protect him or children, and that adds to the heavier load. And this is why he writes this way. And this is why, because we don't understand the context, people don't study the Bible and understand the context, they misinterpret these verses so often. Look at verse 27 with me. At least the first part of it. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. So now he's given his formula, and those who were, who were married are not to seek to be released, and those who have given this gift of singleness have and been released from marriage, probably widowers here, are not to seek a wife. And even in this present distress, which can make a married life difficult, right? There is present distress, even outside of war. Paul's instructions in the beginning of 27 agree with God's instruction from the beginning of, of creation that a man and wife should remain together. He, he's echoing that. He's saying just what God said. Jesus put it this way, what God has put together, let no man separate. So he's echoing that, isn't he? The syntactical structure of the verse is amazing. He says, are you bound, here's the verb bound, perfect passive to a wife. Perfect, something that happened in a unique time and back in time where, where you joined before God and through vows with that person. It's passive because God gave you that person. It's a gift, right? So he says to a wife, that's who God gave you. Do not seek imperative. Do not seek imperative to be released. Now, again, Paul's speaking from a man's perspective because he's writing this. But the reverse is same, right? Wife, God gave you at a point in time a husband. Do not seek to be released from that one and again, we know where Jesus and Paul have shown where the Bible allows for divorce to abandonment and infidelity, right? But that's not, that's not the context here. 
context is people are wanting to get out of their relationship because they think they're going to be more spiritual. Now, add this thought. Paul's a Jew, right? He's coming from a Jewish perspective in some ways. And for a Jewish person, they would look at marriage that as a virgin who is pledged in her betrothal time was the same vows that they would give at marriage time. You go, how do you know this? Look at at Joseph and, and Mary. Joseph's wrestling after he hears his sweet bride is pregnant and it's tearing in him up. He falls asleep. God comes to him through a, uh, through a vision to remind him, don't put her away. Divorce her. Put her in a very difficult position because those vows have already been given in that betrothal period. So Paul's coming to this and saying, God, what God puts together, don't separate. And here's this ascetic group within the church going, oh, you'll be more spiritual if you don't marry. So Paul understands the difficulty of what's going on here. And I believe Paul's speaking to both married and single, both married and engaged here. And again, the word of God is holding up the sanctity of marriage. As he goes through this, Paul's instruction is don't seek termination because you think you're going to gain something. Now notice the second part of verse 27. It parallels the first. Are you released? Perfect passive. There's a point in time where God, passive, allows you to do this from a wife, do not seek imperative, seek imperative, a wife. In order to gain something, right, from this. And so notice that he repeats this same kind of phrase here, released. And most likely Paul has in mind widowers here that had somehow been separated or divorced or by death or some way, and, and he, deals, he deals with them in, in verses 10 through 13, but, he, but he's, he's, he's trying to help whoever this is to stay in this situation. And he'll give a deeper explanation in verses 32 through 35 why singleness gives a greater opportunity for the gospel. But look at the, look at the rest of verse 29 and down through 30. Excuse me, verse, verse, the rest of 28. And if a virgin, excuse me, but if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life. And I'm trying to spare you. Now, clearly in the first part of this verse, Paul's opposing this ascetic view of gaining spirituality from from not being married, right? So he states that in no way is marriage sinful because it's ordained and instituted by God from the beginning of time, right? Right? In verse 9, Paul reminded the church that they did not, if they did not have the gift of, of freedom, um, which singleness provides, they were to marry. He's already dealt with that. So Paul is not agreeing with the ascetic legalist here, but he's addressing the hardships of what he calls the present distresses of this time. In fact, Paul's assuring the Corinthians that if they choose to marry versus remain single, they're still blameless and they are not in sin And yet there are some serious challenges. You see that? Can you see that in verse 28? There's serious challenges. He says, such will have trouble in this life. I'm trying to spare you. You Boy, thanks, Scott. We just got engaged last night. Some people in here that did. (laughs) But look what he says. Yet such will have trouble in this life. The will have is, is plural, so we know it refers to a group of people married or uh, contemplating marriage. 
But then he uses this word trouble. Philipsis is the, the Greek word. It, it means tribulation. It, it's actually sometimes translated famine. It, it's used in the context of two objects that are pressed together. I think that's a pretty description, good description of marriage. We're pressed together. So the idea here is that those who choose to marry, future tense, it's in future tense there, will have affliction in the flesh, in the, in the body, in the life, right? Sarks is the word there. Two sinners put together, <laughs> there's going to be difficulties, aren't there? Amen? Married people? We understand that, right? It's not easy. There's a battle each and every morning when we wake up. We are consumed with ourselves or we're going to be consumed with God. And if we're consumed with ourselves, we're not going to be a very good spouse. If we're consumed with God, we're going to be a better spouse, right? And we battle that, don't we? Each and every morning when we wake up. Because our flesh desires to have preeminence. Now notice at the end of verse 28, Paul desires to spare people from this excess stress. And notice that Paul becomes very intimate in his address to the reader here. Notice he's using personal pronouns like I. So you want to see his pastoral care here. He wants people not to have excess trouble if he can, right? And clearly Paul's not against marriage, but in the present situation, he discourages marriage to, to just to spare people from pending problems. Now think about this. In less than 10 years from the, letter, the time this letter is written, Nero is going to burn down Rome and blame the Christians for it. And that's going to unleash this persecution on the first century church like it's never been seen before. And Paul doesn't know exactly all that's going to happen, but he knows it's coming. He knows it's coming. And Christians are going to die horrible deaths. And Paul, in a way, foresees this. And you imagine, even in the time of the Reformation, when men are being burned at the stake and what their wives were going through. So Paul knows that trouble's coming. We know Nero will have his hand in the death of Paul. And history tells us that Nero beheads Paul try to stop the church. So are you willing to pursue singleness or marriage in this distress, this present distress, and are you willing to keep a right perspective of mercy so that your marriage or your singleness does not detour from the glory of God and live in light of eternity? This is what Paul's after. And look, this is a huge counseling session, isn't it, in here? What are you doing with your singleness and your marriage? Are you dependent upon the mercy of God, or are you just winging it? Your spouse may say, he or she is winging it. <laughs> we don't want to wing it. We want our marriages to be vibrant. We want our singleness to be a tool for God that he can use for his glory and we can cause us to live in light of the coming of Jesus Christ. Third thought. The mercy of God fuels the temporary gifts of singleness, marriage, and the blessing of this world for eternal purposes. The mercy of God fuels the temporary gifts of singleness, marriage, and the blessings of this world for eternal purposes. 
Look at the beginning of verse 29. He says, but this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened. After the instruction to virgins and engaged couples here, Paul now is, in a very real sense, envisioning hardship that the believers in Corinth may go through. And again, we are reminded here that Paul has a very eschatological view of things, right? Notice he says the time has been shortened. So he has a mindset. He's constantly reminding the reader of the imminent return of Jesus. This is why I loved when J.R. Packer died, we got some of his memoirs out, and he said, and I never forgot this since that, he said he spent an hour a day thinking about heaven and the return of Jesus. I mean, I look at my life, and I've got an hour to spare, right? I'm so busy, I've got all this stuff going on. Jeb Packer says, I thought about heaven and the return of Jesus for an hour a day. You know why he did that? Because it kept his life in perspective. We just lose perspective all the time. We have joys and desires. And so notice how, how much he's hitting here, here in verse 29. He says, the time has been shortened. Look at the end of verse 31. The form of this world is passing away. And these are emphatic statements. The language is emphatic, and he's conveying this message of the brevity of time. You have a few measly years. You may get 70. You may get 80. You may get 90. But compared to eternity, this is just a brief step, isn't it? He's trying to help us work through that. Now, what I believe Paul is directing the church's attention to is the changing pattern of the world, which now condenses time. So Paul's desire for the church is to realize that the age is temporary. There's a rapid progression of events, so we should grasp the brevity of this life. And you go, well, what do you mean by this? Let me see if I can give you some illustrations. Those of us who are a little older, we have watched here lately the tipping of the moral scale. And it didn't tip, it plunged. And you younger people, we, 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 we are, you're right in the middle of it. You're dealing with it. Many of your friends are in, in, caught in some of these sins and things that are going on. We want you to step back and just look at the perspective of your parents and grandparents and those of us a little older. We, we saw the 60s. We saw some of those things that were going on there. We, we saw some immorality. And yet there was a nation that had Judeo-Christian ethics to it that has kept this nation from embracing blatant immorality that flies in the face of God. But that's gone. And it tipped. And I think one of these things this passage did for me this week is help me see what's happening, the distresses in the world, to remind me of the brevity of this life and how quickly things can go. And a hundred years from now, if, if still the church is on this earth, Think about this. What will it be like? How quickly we watch things moving. And think about this. If some disease doesn't get you, some power-hungry dictator will. And that's, you just see this moving. Change administration. Let's go take Ukraine. And Taiwan's next. And our brothers and sisters, where there's many churches... The faith is strong within Taiwan. There's a great endangerment there. Time's moving quickly. 
And we begin to see that Paul says, let's think about these things. Now, notice Paul's demeanor here. He's addressing this difficult church as brethren, right? See it? He again uses the personal pronoun in ah. He's seeking to shepherd the church through this present distresses, right? They're going through. That little word this in there points to this, points forward to Paul's biblical view. He's, he's, he's trying to point them to what includes marriage and singleness and joy and sorrow and all these things. So I don't believe Paul is saying the time has been shortened, that he's talking about calendar time. He's talking about the, the idea of the shortness of time in which we have left on this earth. And you can sense it in Paul's passion here. There's a limited time to proclaim the gospel. And so he's pushing, listen, this is what I think he's doing. He's pushing the church to remove obstacles. If your marriage is an obstacle, he's not telling you to get out of it. He's telling you to fix it by the mercies of God. He's telling you not to get married in order to think you're more spiritual. That, oh, if I just get married, I'll be a better Christian. No, you won't. You'll carry the immoralities and the struggles in your heart and mind. You'll carry that right in there. So he says, as a single person, love Jesus, anticipate his return. As a married person, confess your sins, walk with Jesus, be, be better together than apart. That's what he's after. And you can sense this. And so he's telling the church, reject worldly perspective of time. The world's all wrong on time, right? If we just listen to them when it comes to the environment, we're all dead tomorrow. They have a terrible perspective of time. And yet the Bible tells us that God controls time. And we as the church are to adopt God's view of the coming kingdom and the gospel outlook on this life and focus on eternal things rather than things here that stress us out. And so it has to be applied now to our marriage, to our singleness, to our sorrow and death, to joy, possessions, businesses. All of this faith has to, has to influence, right? And think about this. Because of our God-given faith, we now have a proper perspective. We understand the world's passing away. The coming of the kingdom of God is imminent. And that should touch us in every aspect of our life. See, that's what Paul's after. Now, look what he does in verses middle of 29 all the way down through 31. He says, so that from now on, those who have wives should be as those who have none. Those who weep as those they did not weep. And those who rejoice as those they did not rejoice. And those who buy as those they did not possess. And those who use the world as those that did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. I love this little phrase, so that from now on. You know what he's doing? He's grabbing our little spiritual faces and going, quit looking at all that stuff and start looking at an eternal perspective of this. Fox News does not have the answer for the Christian. Or any of the rest of them. I understand our perspective on certain things. But Paul's trying to grab our little spiritual faces and point them to a truth that things as we see will pass away. And through the inspiration of the Spirit, Paul is rattling off an almost poetic description of the human life here, isn't he? And he begins with a subject that he has been addressing all through the chapter. He begins with marriage. 
marriage. And he's not advocating celibacy or separation of divorce, but he does seem to imply that a Christian marriage is confined to this present age, right? We know that, the Bible says, there is no marriage and giving and taking in, in, in heaven. And, and we've talked about that and understanding that. But so he's pointing to this limited time that God introduced marriage from the dawn of human history, and he's protecting it, but yet he's saying, God made marriage, but use it now for his glory. I think the key phrase here, he says it five times, as though they had. And the Apostle Paul is articulating that in everything from marriage to weeping to rejoicing to possessions to things the world provides for us should be viewed as something that that can be and should be by Christians let go at any time if I have to. Now that's hard. Especially hard when it comes to God taking a spouse home. There's some in this room who have suffered greatly in that. God is trying to take you, brother or sister, and show you, I have a greater, greater plan. Trust me. Live your life for me. I believe God's word is challenging that everything we have should be viewed as a preparation for life after death. Write this passage down. I, have to, I don't have time to get there, but 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 through 12 is a great passage to read because Paul's not telling us to do something he did not do. And there he shares his example of things that he let go, suffering that he went through, all because he had a a very clear view um, of coming of Christ and a desire to be ready when he comes and to live for him with everything he had till his breath was gone. And you will find great encouragement in that. And so we ask that question, is this our perspective? Do we view everything for the furtherance of the gospel? I think to make this very personal, and within the context here of 1 Corinthians 7, you have to ask the question, is your singleness, is your marriage an opportunity for the gospel? And is it an opportunity for you to lead towards eternity? And I don't want to hear, yeah, I can't wait for heaven because I'm married to her. That's wrong. Dead wrong. (laughs) Is my marriage and the love we share for Jesus Christ together, does that cause us to anticipate the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? And is my singleness, that devotion that I have to God because I don't have the distractions a married person is, am I content with what he has so that I can serve God in this present age, even in these present distresses, because he is coming and he's going to make me his child forever. I'm going to sit at his table. See, I think if not, in bitterness hits singles, discontentment with God. Marriages run through discontentment because they have their mind and heart set on things that are temporal. And that doesn't mean if you don't have a a very sinful issue in your marriage that you should not come and get biblical counsel and get help and repent and confess those things and turn to Christ. But this is to encourage you to keep running. This last Wednesday night, Hayward led us in that great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, sang by Martin Luther in the 1500s, or written by Martin Luther in the 1500s. He said this, I I remember singing this and thinking about this message. It said, let goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. 
Oh, brothers and sisters, let good and kindreds go. You know what that means? As a Christian, stop white-knuckling things. If God has given you something, hold it with an open hand. He may want it. That's how we hold our singleness, our marriage, our possessions that we have in this world. Notice it says this form of this world is passing away. Paul walks us through our life as he gathers in our marriages, our singleness, even our sorrows and joys, our possessions and the benefits of the world. And he shows the brevity and the shortness of this life. And we know that all creation is groaning, right, because of sin. And the creation is anticipating the return of the king. And so this form of this world that points to the appearance, it points to the seasons, the power struggles, the forms of depravity that are constantly on display, this will all go away into destruction. John says, don't love the world. Don't love the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then he goes on to say the world's passing away and also it's lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. That's the will of God. Your singleness, your marriage, whatever he has you in, that's God's will. Do we honor him with that? That's what he's after. And look, before all of the forms of this world pass away, meaning mankind's rule of this world, King Jesus is planning his return. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when I get it all done, I'm coming back for you. It's all part of his plan. And he will someday rule perfectly. So this is what Paul means when he refers to this present distresses. Can we live in our relationships, our sorrows, our joys, our ever-expanding world pleasures and the services that mankind gives us? whether that's medical care or whatever. I mean, think about all the things that come from the good things from this world. Is men, women have the minds to shoot rockets into space and medical procedures. We've heard of one this week that was just staggering to us what, 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 what men and women have done. But we may have to give all that up because we don't fit the world's paradigm anymore. And so the church goes into persecution because they're full of hate crimes and so forth. Are you willing to let that go? And most importantly, right now, in our freedom, will we live for the Lord Jesus Christ? Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in, for where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Are you fueled by the mercies of God? Father in heaven, what a powerful reminder these verses are. We seem to get lost in our present relationships, and maybe the lack of them greatly bothers us. Maybe our sorrows and our joys seem to be what we live for. Our sorrows bring us down, and we live in depression, and we're upset and hurt, and or we, or we live for the next temporary joy or happiness that will soon fleet away, Lord. You're telling us that there's something greater. And no matter what our position is, married, single, wealthy, struggling financially, no matter what it is, God, you want the gospel to be pronounced, proclaimed through us. And so, Lord, we ask that we would not try to gain our spirituality by trying to change our circumstances, but learn to live for Jesus in our circumstances. 
that you presently have put us in, even with the present distresses. May we glorify you. Now, Father, we're going to turn to your table. And you said, you said, Lord Jesus, that we are to do this in remembrance of you. And so I pray, Lord, that as we do this, that brothers and sisters within this church will be encouraged to live out what God has ordained for them as they remember the mercies of Jesus given to us by the Father. And we pray that you would stimulate our hearts to love you. In Jesus' name, amen.